The United States pays the highest prices in the world for patent-protected drugs, in part because of our system's failure to consistently establish prices that reflect a treatment's value. Although there's been debate about the possible loss of innovation, if manufacturers have lower revenues, we could perhaps design drug policy that aimed both to offer Americans more affordable medications and to promote development of effective new drugs. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Rena Conti, an Associate Professor in the Department of Markets, Public Policy, and Law at the Boston University Questrom School of Business. Dr. Conti has co-authored a perspective article about drug pricing policy in the United States. Dr. Conti, you write in your perspective article that the prices that Americans pay for drugs generally don't reflect their clinical and economic value, as you put it. Could you elaborate on that point? Reform is needed in the U.S. pharmaceutical landscape because the U.S. pays the highest prices in the world for patent-protected drugs, and these prices are driving more than 30% of U.S. consumers to forgo the benefits of these innovations, as well as stressing payer budgets. They're also forcing patients, but also payers, to choose. Choose between covering one drug that might be available or being able to purchase one drug at the pharmacy counter and groceries, rent, food, and other needed supports. Part of the problem or the pathology in the U.S. market is that unlike our OECD country counterparts, there is no review of the value of these products once they are approved as safe and effective by the Food and Drug Administration. So in other words, there's this bar, is the product safe and effective in clinical trials, but then there's no review of how well the clinical benefits provided in the trials are established in the trials really translate into people in the real world, and nor is there any assessment of the costs of these products relative to their value that's being provided to them. As a result, the U.S. market pays prices that are essentially untethered from both their clinical value in many cases and also their economic value. In other words, there's this kind of crucial step. Are these things actually worth it? Do they actually provide value to real people that gets missed in our U.S. marketplace? So Congress is currently looking at this situation. What drug pricing proposals are currently on the table in Washington? There's been a leading proposal to control drug prices called HR3. The bill proposes that a new negotiating authority be extended to the Secretary of Health and Human Services governing Medicare, the insurance purveyor for seniors in the U.S., that would establish prices for selected high expenditure drugs that lacked competition, would separately impose penalties for quarter over quarter or year over year price increases for drugs that exceed the rate of inflation, and lastly, would make drugs more affordable for seniors who have Part D pharmacy coverage. There have been some additional policies that propose alterations in the specifics of each one of those components of the reform proposal, but essentially the structure of we negotiate prices based on value, we impose penalties on products for 
taking very significant price increases that exceed inflation. And we ensure that seniors who need these benefits get them at an affordable price is the basis upon which all reform is based. So to your mind, how extensive would a drug negotiation program have to be to make a meaningful difference for payers and patients? For example, would all patent-protected drugs need to be included? The key for negotiation is its existence. In other words, right now, there is a provision in the statutes authorizing the prescription drug benefit of Medicare that states that the Secretary of Health and Human Services cannot negotiate nor consider evidence of value or economic costs when making coverage decisions. And so really what this reform is doing is attempting to overturn that prohibition and establishing the power of the Secretary of Health and Human Services to negotiate, to simply evaluate the clinical and economic benefits of these products is actually good enough. The power doesn't need to be extensive to set the precedent that assessing the clinical and economic value of these products is in the interest of the American public. You also recommend expanding NIH funding for early stage research and development. Is there evidence that increasing funding would stimulate greater investment by the private sector and ultimately create greater value? Yes, absolutely. There's two decades of research that suggests that nearly all drugs brought to market in the U.S. rely on NIH-supported basic science, and many of the most transformative drugs that are actual cures were initially developed in university labs and then spun out into small companies. You can think of this as the NIH is fundamentally the engine of new products that benefit Americans and many other people as well, embodied in new drugs that come to market. And then as a final step, you suggest reducing the expenses and risks that face companies that engage in later stage development of drugs whose financial value for the companies isn't going to be commensurate with their social value. So could you give a couple of examples of that kind of product? Sure. So for example, we've all just lived through a pandemic and it has become clear that antimicrobials, antivirals, and vaccines are critical to keeping us well and also our economy going. And yet there are many products such as these that are actually underinvested in. What I mean by that is that although we need new antibiotics, we need more platforms and vaccine development to meet many diseases, we don't have as many of them as we should. And so we know that NIH funding isn't enough to get the companies interested. Here we need to provide additional economic incentives. And what we are suggesting is that the government do what they did with COVID, which is actually to provide additional investment that de-risks the private sector from wanting to invest and putting money at risk in investing in new drugs and new vaccines that will meet other unmet needs, such as cancer, other antimicrobial threats many other types of conditions for which we have fewer products 
and or the products that are available aren't um, as valuable as they can be. So finally, looking at that biopharmaceutical pipeline that you're envisaging to address social needs, just how would such a system look different from the current research and development model? So right now, the NIH supports a lot of new product development, but we don't have a lot of funds that support later stages of development, testing, and manufacturing. We have a couple of programs, such as NCATS and the SBIR program, that supports innovators in trying to bring a product to market. But those are actually quite small programs, given the vast size of the opportunity here. And so what we are suggesting is that Congress consider, and other policymakers as well, putting more money in to de-risking the later stages of development and essentially creating a more viable market for companies that are interested in bringing really transformative products to market, the kind of ability to do so. Thank you, Dr. Conti.